If you have a copy of God's Word, either on a device or um, a pew Bible or perhaps uh, your own Bible, uh, please turn with me to Judges chapter 2. That's right after the book of Joshua. uh, uh, So towards the front of your Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, The text will also be printed on the screen behind me, and it's also in your bulletin as well this morning. Uh, We began last week uh, our study through the Old Testament book of Judges. And one of the things we learned about Judges, if you're going to understand Judges, you've got to first understand the book of Joshua, because Joshua, or I'm sorry, Judges begins by looking back at Joshua for context. We saw that last week in chapter 1. What's interesting is we're going to see the exact same thing in chapter 2. And so it begins the same way, by looking back at Joshua. And so we could say chapter 2 is still part of the introduction. Introduction 2.0, that's what we're going to see this morning. And as we read this morning, I want you to pay attention for what is known as the cycle of the judges. We're going to see a a cycle begin in chapter 2, and believe it or not, it's going to spiral downward and get worse. And as as we read the passage this morning, you're going to think, this is pretty bad. We're off to a terrible start. And you're telling me it's going to get worse? It actually is going to get worse. But pay attention to the cycle uh, as we read here. Uh, and then we'll talk more about that uh, in a minute. This is God's Word. Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 19. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sowed them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. So that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out the hand of the Lord was against them. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. He saved them out of the hand of their plunderer. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked. Who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them. The Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judges. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judges died, 
they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This is God's holy word. Let me pray and ask him to help us this morning. Father, you have told us as we confessed that the Holy Spirit is given to us to help us understand God's word. And so would you help us now understand this passage and help show us Jesus and your amazing uh, love for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. October 2003. There was a teenager by the name of Bethany Hamilton. You might be familiar with that name from the movie Soul Surfer. She was a surfer and she was floating on her surfboard off the coast of Hawaii and she was out past the waves, so she was pretty far out. She could see the waves crashing into the Hawaiian coast and she just uh, to the left of her, um, within talking distance, was her good friend Alana Blanchard. The waves were breaking And here's how she describes, Bethany Hamilton describes what happens next. I was lying there on my surfboard and the shark came out of nowhere. I didn't even see it. I thought earlier I had seen something out of the corner of my eye, but I didn't think it was anything. And then I felt something tugging on my left arm and it was like the tug that you feel when you're eating a piece of steak. And I looked down. And there was a pool of blood right by my left arm. I had been bitten by a shark. She had no feeling in her arm and lost her arm up to her shoulder. And they looked at the bite in her surfboard and were able to indicate that the shark that had taken off her arm was a six to eight foot tiger shark. Here's what she says in describing that whole scene. There wasn't even a ripple. There wasn't even a ripple. And I tell you that story this morning because there is a sense in which we could say there is a fin in the water right here this morning. And there's not even a ripple. You see, nothing's happening above the surface. It all looks great. But just below the surface, something is happening down deep inside our hearts. What is it? Well, it's the downward spiral into sin. And as we're going to see in this passage, it is so, so subtle, just like the shark attack on Bethany Hamilton. And maybe you've noticed it in your own life, out of the corner of your eye, so to speak, and thought, ah, that's nothing, it's no big deal. And it just simply comes out of nowhere. It's so quiet, but yet it is so lethal. Friends, the greatest danger for you this morning, the greatest danger for us in over-the-mountain Birmingham is not you're going to shake your fist at God, turn into an atheist, and turn your back on Him. Is that possible? Yes, but that is not your greatest danger. Your greatest danger this morning and my greatest danger this morning is this. Nah, that could never happen to me. You don't know who I am. You don't know my family and the way I grew up. I can check out of this series on Judges. This sounds really crazy, and God's people are going to do some really crazy things and do things that we can't hardly even talk about, 
but that would never. That's not me. You don't know me. Friends, the book of Judges, one of its purposes is to jolt you back into reality. It's to jolt you back into reality and give you self-awareness and self-knowledge about your own heart. The book of Judges, it's football season, so the smelling salts are coming out on the sidelines. (laughs) You know what smelling salts are? A player gets knocked out or gets their bell rung and, you know, they start smelling the smelling salts. And what does that do? It, it, it wakes them up. It causes them to pay attention. That's what the book of Judges is meant to do for us. Throughout this series, and particularly here in Judges chapter 2, we're going to see front and center put on display that without the grace of God, the human heart often does and can spiral into sin and evil. We, we're going to see it every week. This cycle of they do evil in the sight of the Lord. God sends enemies to oppress them. They cry out. Then he sends a judge. And then what happens? They fall right back. It's going to be like a broken record. They're going to fall right back into the same patterns. But what we're going to see, believe it or not, is this spiral is going to get worse. The judges will get more wicked. The rebellion will get worse. The oppression heavier. And the repentance and the revival will actually get weaker and weaker as we go throughout the book. This morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus in on the cycle. We're going to look at the cycle of the judges. We're going to take a close look. We're going to see what's really going on and how it gets started. But most importantly, we're going to see how God responds, which is amazing. Three things this morning, three questions. Where does it begin, the cycle, the rebellion? Where does it begin, number one? What is the result And lastly, how it ends, or how God responds. So let's look at number one, where it begins. This is really an extension of uh, of what I was saying uh, earlier, but I think this is so important. We need to spend some time thinking about this. I want you to think about this passage. God's people and this cycle and where they end up did not start with them just saying, I'm done with God. We're going to go out and do all these evil things and get really crazy. No. It doesn't start with them turning their back on God. It's way more subtle than that. And I think that is a wake-up call for us. It's way more subtle and more quiet than just outright outward rebellion. Look at verses 7 and 8. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And so while Joshua was alive, all was good. (laughs) They were serving God. But what happens? Look, after Joshua dies, there's a shift. Look at verses 10 and 11. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor the work that he had done for Israel. Every commentator points out here this idea of not knowing the Lord it, it's not, it doesn't mean that they didn't know about the Exodus. Or they didn't know about God. Or know about the Red Sea. Or crossing the Jordan. Or the walls coming down at Jericho. What it's getting at here is that those things no longer moved them. 
Those things were no longer the center of who they were. They weren't central to them. Let me put it in our terms. They knew the facts about God. They knew their theology. They knew their catechism. But they didn't really know God. They didn't have a relationship with Him. God wasn't sweet and beautiful to them. And so the question, the natural question is, what happened? I mean, whose fault is it? Is it the parents' fault? Did they just lack the responsibility? Or is it the children's fault? Uh, You know, did the parents forget to teach them? Or did the kids just say, ah, we're done with this? Well, it doesn't really tell us. But it was probably a little of both of those things going on. But let's make a specific application here. Because I, I think one of the natural applications out of this passage is... What's it? How, how can we prevent this happening now? I mean, another way to say it is, how can we make sure that we pass down our faith to the next generation? Or if you're a parent, how can you make sure that you pass down your faith? Don't we all want that? I, I think about those things. How can we make sure those things are passed down to our children? Is that a complicated question? Absolutely, it's complicated. And you can't say everything. But I spent, I've spent my whole ministry career dealing with the next generation, so to speak. And so I want to make a couple of comments that I, I think of ways that we can help pass down our faith to the next generation. But it actually comes from the passage, I believe. It's an application and particularly can be taken out of De- Deuteronomy chapter 6. But one of the things that will help the next generation to know God and not just the facts about Him is when the next generation sees the gospel applying to every area of our lives. You know what I mean by that? Our faith has got to be more than just something that's abstract and academic and something that we do on Sunday mornings. Our children or the next generation have to see that Jesus actually matters and has something to say about the way that I work. Or about the way that I rest. Or about the way I think about my sexuality or pleasure or material possessions or my marriage. And the way I treat my spouse. Children will instinctively know and follow the gods of their parents. Is that not a scary thought? That actually undid me this week. Here's a question. Which gods would your children say that you follow this morning? Not who you get lift service to. Who are you actually bowing down to and really serving in your life? Man. Would they say money or success or power? See, often we think, I think especially in the PCA, is we do a really good job of instructing our children and often we think, Instruct your children in right doctrine. Shelter them as much as possible from the world and get them involved in as many religious activities as we possibly can. And if we do that, we're good. We've done all we can do, so to speak. But I saw this in spades and set across the table from students week after week, college students coming from PCA churches who had the catechism memorized. They knew it better than I did. But I saw their life, and they would even say, 
that they were pursuing the gods of their parents and pursuing the gods of their culture. But in their minds and in their parents' mind, they were doing fine. Why? Because they knew it. They knew the truth. They knew the facts about God. You see, when we focus only on the facts, here's what ends up happening. You end up with a bunch of Pharisees. Pharisees who have a lot of focus on outward behavior and no focus at all on what's going on on the inside. And as a result, children often that I would see dealt with a ton of shame because they never felt good enough. Or on the flip side, they were extremely burned out and hated Christianity and wanted to walk away from the faith because they were good rule keepers and there was no joy in their life. And everybody's saying there's supposed to be joy. There was no joy and the Christianity felt like drudgery. And there was no good news in it. And so what do we do? Well, I believe one of the things we can do is stop lecturing our kids and start connecting with our kids. And I'm as guilty as anyone this morning. It is way easier to give your children a lecture and the next generation a lecture rather than take the time to really connect with them. And that's what they need. That's what this generation, I think, needs if they're ever going to take hold of the gospel and run with it. Do they need the facts? Yes, we're good at the facts. I'm not worried about us imparting knowledge. We're going to do that. But are we connecting with them? How does that happen? Well, think about your own life. How do you, when do you feel most connected to another human being? When do you feel most connected to another human being? Well, chances are you feel most connected to another person when they share your heart with when they share their heart with you or you share your heart with them. Let me give you another word. You know when you feel most connected, the power of connection comes through vulnerability. It comes through transparency. And so what am I getting at? Very very simply, We want to pass our faith on. Our kids and the next generation have got to see that we actually need Jesus. That we actually uh, have real sin and real struggles in our lives. And when we do that, when we show them that Jesus actually we need him because of our sin, what that does is that makes you a real person. With real sin. And it lets your children know that you're not looking down in judgment on them. But you're actually a sinner who's actually in the fight with them. I love John Cox in the marriage um, conference that he did last year. When he, talked, when he says when he would talk with his children. One of the first things that he would say to them is to say, hey, there's no difference in me and you. We got the same heart. The only difference in me and you is that for whatever reason God put me on this earth. 30 years before you, now let's talk. See what that does? That's connection. And I think that is one of the significant things that will pass the faith on when they see that we are real people in need of a real Savior. Secondly, what is the result? Look at verses 11 through 13. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And when we hear evil, we think of the real nasty, horrific stuff. And that does... That is included in evil, but that's not what we see here. 
is it? Or not the way we normally think of it in what it means. Look at verse 11. They served the bells. That's what was evil. We don't think about that being evil. Simply it means that they found other things more important than God. They had abandoned the Lord and started serving other gods, Ashtoreth and Baal. Who was Baal? Well, he was the local uh, god of weather. And so he controlled the rain. Back then, crops meant a whole lot. Crops was how you ate. The crops were also how you would make money. And so here's the equation. Bad weather equals bad crops equals no food equals no money. So if he's in charge of the weather, Baal's also in charge of your money and also of your food. Think about, we're going to get there, but think about what's really underneath their idolatry is a lack of trust in God. Look at Ashtoreth. She was the fertility goddess. Children are gifts from God. They were back then. And your children were in sense social security for you. That's who took care of you when you got older. And not only that, uh, you wanted to have lots and lots of children in your village. You definitely wanted more than the village down the street from you. Because if you made them mad and a war broke out, you wanted more people. And so children, in a sense, were essential for the protection of the community. Where am I going with this? Well, God's people and the gods that they were worshiping, Ashtoreth and Baal, they were actually tipping their hand to their real priorities. They were showing you what was really important to them. And it shows us here also that it's really possible for us to worship many gods at the same time. That idolatry is worshiping God. These Israelites loved God. But they also loved other things. And put other things in his place. And so Christianity... This is what it's getting at. looks like in this situation, they had one foot in the world, but also one foot uh, in Christianity with God. Some of you maybe this morning are here and you're not a Christian, and you think, oh, this is great because I'm not religious. I don't have any God that I follow, so I'm good. Well, let me say this, that everyone worships something. That's how you were created. As a human being, you're meant to worship something. And if you don't worship God, you're going to be worshiping something else. You're going to look to something else to give you meaning and significance and happiness. And whatever that is in your life this morning, that is your God. That is what you are worshiping. It might be power or sex or career or pleasure or academics or family. But please don't be naive to think that just because you're not religious and don't go to church that you're not worshiping. Everybody. Everyone is a worshiper. For the Christian, it's a wake-up call, isn't it? Because it says that it's possible here to call yourself a Christian, but to actually be living for something else. To actually be half-hearted. To actually love God, but love other things more than God. How does it look? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. It looks like coming to worship most weeks out of the month. It looks like praying pretty regularly. And it looks like uh, reading your Bible pretty regularly. But when you leave the doors of this church, you live life the way you want to live it and you do what you want to do and how you want to do it. Or maybe it looks this way. Youth, 
Maybe you never miss a, a, a Sunday night. Maybe you never miss a small group or never miss Sunday morning. But you still live in perpetual anxiety over whether or not he likes you. Or whether or not she texts you back. Or maybe it looks like this. Maybe you read your Bible six times a week. And you've joined, you come to women's Bible study or you've joined a, 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 a grace group. But yet you spend your money however it is that you want. You see, what we see here is that idolatry, it's not necessarily walking into your house with a wooden statue and bowing down when you walk in the door. It can look very moral and very, very religious. And regardless of how it manifests itself, look at what God thinks about it in verse 17. He says, you've prostituted yourself out to other gods. You see, giving God only our half heart, uh, being half-hearted and living for something else, God calls it spiritual, ad- ad- spiritual adultery. So what, is, what do our idols do to us? Look at verses 14 and 15, and then we'll wrap up this point. So God, because of this, gives them over uh, to be enslaved by their enemies. But don't, you, did you catch the irony here? I mean, don't miss this. They start worshiping these foreign gods. And so it says next, so all of these foreign gods just started loving them and serving them and laying down their life for them and making their life the best that it possibly could be. That's not what it says, is it? They started serving these other gods. And you know what happened? Those gods crushed them, used them, and drove them into the ground. And so here's the principle. is you worship anything else other than God, it will kill you. Worship anything other than God, it will lead you to slavery and crush you and own you and control you and enslave you and always demand a sacrifice. And that's how Christianity is different. Because the God of Christianity doesn't demand your life in order to be loved and significant. Jesus actually, instead of demanding your life, he actually gives up his life for you because he loves you. And that's what makes the uh, the God of the Bible and Christianity different from all the other idols that we bow down to in our culture. Thirdly, how does it end? How does this cycle end? I find this to be a tremendous comfort and, and uh, an amazing encouragement to us. Okay, so think about what we've gone through so far. They've forgotten God. They've started worshiping other idols. And so let's look at how God responds to all this mess. Well, the first thing we notice that we can't overlook, verse 14, he gets angry. And some of you probably are right now going, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) The angry God of the Old Testament, that's exactly what I thought I was going to get in our study of the book of Judges. Hang with me. Don't go there yet. Notice uh, he's angry because they have put something in his place. And so it is a jealous anger. It's the kind of anger that a husband has for his wife. It's anger at his people's spiritual adultery. It's a loving anger or a fateful anger. It's like, think about a parent. 
and their child, they see their child going down the wrong path and ruining their life. And they get angry about it. It's that kind of thing. I love Ralph Davis. He's a commentator. He says this about, he uses this illustration um, in his commentary. He says, imagine a wife having having an affair and the husband just simply saying, well, oh well. (laughs) You win some and you lose some. That's not really what I was hoping for. But oh well. What would you say about the husband in that story? You would say the husband was not loving at all. You would say that there was no real love there in his heart at all if he were to respond that way. It's the same thing with God. This anger is an outworking of his love. God refuses to accept our half-heartedness. And he'll do anything, and that's scary. We're going to get there. He'll do anything in order to get you back and to root out the idol's from your heart. Because God cannot accept it. He loves you way too much to be okay with that. He is jealous for you. Here it is. Think about this. Here's what it means. This is crazy. You leave Him and forsake Him and commit spiritual adultery and run after other lovers and He pursues you. Is that not nuts? That's the God of the Bible. You can't make this stuff up. That is amazing. You leave him and he pursues you at all costs. I find that extremely comforting, friends. You've got a God that is going to hunt you down and will not stop at anything until he gets your whole heart. And we see it. Look at verse 16. He raises up judges and very we're going to see that all throughout this study but this is not a courtroom judge with a black robe okay the judges meant military leader they were a deliverer these were warrior judges and God sends them and rescues his people and then what happens there's peace for a while and then they fall right back into the cycle that we will see secondly We see God has compassion on his people. Verse 18 probably was the verse that really just stuck out to me the most this week and really was the one that really um, came alive and was amazing to me. Look at verse 18. God has pity on them as they groan. A couple observations. God sends this salvation to them to rescue them not because and it did include his heart breaking but here it says he he rescued them because his people's heart because their heart was breaking because they were miserable and God actually cared about that despite all their rebellion he rescues them The groaning here, and I think it comes through very clearly, and other people have pointed this out, it's not a groaning of repentance. There's really no repentance here. There's only misery here. And God still rescues them. Anybody other than me ever feel like their repentance is half-hearted? And sometimes you could take or leave it? God doesn't care. He does care, but he's going to pursue you in the midst of even, I I think that is amazing, in the midst of your half-heartedness. 
God is still going to pursue you and hunt you down because He's stirred up by your misery. Groaning. Look at verse 18. Let's work this out. It's a noun, and that word for groaning is only used three times in the Old Testament. The other two times it's used in the book of Exodus when they are groaning because they have been enslaved by the Egyptians. And it's a groaning, if you know the book of Exodus, that God hears and He remembers His covenant with them and He delivers them. That's the same word in Exodus, those two places in Exodus, that's used in Judges chapter 2, verse 18. And so the author here is wanting us to carry back and to think back to the book of Exodus. Do you see what he's doing here? And what the author's doing, same God, the God of the judges, is the same God you worship today. It's the same God that you... That in this context, they worshiped 300 years before, and the author is saying he's the same. He's going to remember his covenant, and his mercy never comes to an end. Do you believe that this morning? Or do you believe God's done with you? Do you believe, no matter what it is you walked in here with this morning, that God still longs to show you mercy. Friends, the God of this Bible and the book of Judges, His mercy steadfast. His compassion's great. His grace is relentless, as we're going to see. And maybe you think, okay, how can I be sure of that? Well, because thousands of years later, He sent a greater judge and a greater Joshua who would save us not from what could destroy our bodies, but what could, destroy, what could destroy our soul being sin. And what would he do? Well, he would climb up on a cross. Jesus would climb up on a cross. And if you remember, as he's hanging on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is forgotten by his Father. He's forsaken by his Father, so that real, flagrant sinners like us could be remembered. That's God's heart. That's what he does. He longs to show mercy. He longs for you and wants you this morning to experience that mercy. And to the degree that you experience that mercy is to the degree that you will be able to break the downward cycle of sin that is pulling at your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for being so committed to us that even when we're not committed to you and half-hearted, you still pursue us. Forgive us this morning for forgetting you and for making covenants with our idols and other things. Would you help us through your spirit this morning to identify those things that are enslaving us and pulling us downward? We need you to help make us free. Melt our hearts with the deep love and mercy that you've given us through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.